Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that knows this is going to hurt, but it's going to do it anyway. My name's Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hi, Corey. And we're also joined, for the first time in ages, I think, by friend of the pod and all-round good guy, Shaz Rahman. Hello, Shaz. Hello. Good guy. That, that won't last for long. Well, you know, get, <laughs> get the good news in early. And then, um, <laughs> yeah. The time we recorded the third of these tonight, I just been... Renowned Muppet and all-known Cuomo, Shaz Rahman, says. <laughs> We're recording this on November the 25th. That means that Rishi Sunak has been Prime Minister for exactly one month. How's it going for him so far? The main thing of note that's happened uh, since Sunak was Prime Minister, we haven't talked about, was Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement in which he is very much cleaning up this trust's mess as if he had an actual spade. And it wasn't even a metaphorical pile of mess, but was actually in the House of Commons and in the markets. And he was, like in the Aegean stables, just having to get it out with his spade and put it anywhere that wasn't on the UK government's books. I mean, that's a, a very poetic way to describe the situation. Uh, Yeah, obviously with Sunak uh, becoming Prime Minister, the first order of business was trying to stabilise the market and make it so that effectively the the, the government was displaying that they weren't actually committed specifically to the uh, plans that Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss had put out, which so spooked um, the markets in the first place. So, sure enough, uh, Jeremy Hunt, uh, who was kept as the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, by Sunak, has begun the long, tedious work of trying to work out what to cut, where to cut, uh, and, uh, in in theory at least, uh, what taxes will go up to basically close the gap of uh, funding, which I believe was uh, estimated to be around 50, 50 billion. I mean, it is, isn't it? Although I suppose we should say as good social democrats and good rule around left-wing progressive people, we could dispute the fact that there's even a sort of fiscal hole of 50 billion at all, whereas actually if the UK is in a recession, which it seems to be at the moment, that's what the data is suggesting, that therefore the thing to do is actually to try and stimulate spending and actually spend money to and stimulate growth. I mean, the government doesn't really talk about economic growth, I realise, very much. But that could be something to do rather than cut spending and increase taxes, which will probably make things worse. Well, but that's what Liz Trust wanted to do, wasn't it? That was, that was her plan. And then and then that was undermining immediately. So maybe the Tories are trying to distance themselves from that. True, but I suppose there's a difference between, say, borrowing to invest in capital spending, investing in infrastructure as opposed to this trust's plan, which was we're going to cut taxes on the wealthy, we're going to cut corporation tax, and we're going to borrow an absolute shed ton of money to allow investment bankers to buy more champagne. So I think that, that you can, I think, make the argument, although, yes, point taken. Yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, the, the main thing, though, is that for 
well, ever since like the first round of austerity under George Osborne, um, the Conservatives as a party have not drawn any real distinction between day-to-day spend and uh, you know capital expenditure on you know infrastructure and, and things like that. They all kind of view it as this part of the same pot, really, and it's all just government ex- government expense rather than viewing some as this is the day-to-day and this is where you invest for growth. And has there been a problem with the Osborne government deciding that they were going to do spending cuts in the middle of the recession, but essentially prioritising capital spend for those cuts rather than day-to-day spending? Well, you're probably arguably seeing the uh, impact of that on the day-to-day frontline services that people utilise, that the government runs and funds. We're we're seeing it in the impact of the fact that we have a productivity problem uh, in the United Kingdom uh, and that we are about a decade behind a lot of other uh, European nations at the very least in terms of investment in infrastructure, where literally about the only thing, major thing we've committed to is high speeds too, and half the bloody House of Commons still wants to try and cancel that. Well, cancel culture, of course, in the Tory party is something we're going to come on to in all of its senses. Awesome statement. What's we, we've, Let's talk about the economics of it first and then a bit about the politics. So most spending cuts have been delayed until after the election, which I think is meant to be a political trap, isn't it? Which doesn't really work, but we'll talk about the politics about that afterwards. Hunt's tried to be nice. So the Tories, I think, have realised the only people who are voting for them at the moment are pensioners. So therefore, they've kept the triple lock. They are also increasing benefits in line with inflation, which I think at the moment is 418%. So that's... Uh, sort of, hunt, I suppose, showing that um, compassionate yeah. conservatism exists. Absolutely. Problem though is no rabbit from hat. This was very much a nothing. That all of all the stuff that Hunt was said had been briefed before. Hmm. There was no special, uh, like quasi quartet unveiling this tax cut for the rich or uh, cutting pasty duty tax or whatever it is that George Osborne used to do when he wanted to look like a political genius. Hmm. Um, it was it was very much a steady as she goes verging into managed decline, which doesn't really help lots of families who are struggling right now, who actually don't get any help if they're not on benefits and not working. No, but but then to be fair to to Hunt, it's not something I will say very often. Like the when you consider that the entire reason this statement had to happen when it happened, and you know it had to focus on the things it focused on, was because the markets were spooked. Because a load of stuff was announced that wasn't expected necessarily, um, even though you know it was all the stuff that they said they would do during the leadership election, no one actually thought, seemingly thought they were serious about that. Um, a statement which tells you a lot about British politics, I fear. Yeah, it really does. We should talk about that, but yeah, but not yet. Yeah, but um, but the fact that the surprise of those policies being announced was one of the big drivers of the downturn in the in the British economy. The fact that everything was leaked in advance, the fact that ev- there was nothing new, scary, surprising. There was no attempt really to play short-term politics with, with, with the announcements, I'd argue. Maybe, as you say, there's a political trap, quote-unquote, that's in there. But even then, I'm not even convinced that is a, is a trap, or they're trying to necessarily try and treat it as a trap. It's more like their own get-out-of-jail-free card, hopefully, from, from their perspective. But because of all of that, everything was leaked in advance. Everyone knew what was coming. The markets were like, okay, we're happy with this. 
Or at least there's nothing problematic here that we weren't expecting. And that's a win from their perspective. I, I just found it um, to be very much like we're very serious adults now and we're doing very serious business. We are trying to be the opposites of Listrus and Quasi Quasang. So he, he did he did paint a bit like there will be some pain, but we are the best people to move through with this pain and, you know, don't trust Labour. That's the... The story always goes. Labour might wreck the economy. Imagine, <laughs> imagine a dystopia mm. where Rachel Reeves somehow tanks the economy with a single announcement. But I, I suppose government's about making choices, though, isn't it? And so Hunt could have made a decision to prioritise ordinary people who are struggling with energy bills, with fuel costs, with. You've got nurses using food banks, more teachers using food banks, even police officers using food banks. He could have made a choice to try and prioritise his backbenchers instead and maybe try to make it a more overtly political budget, which would have been harder to do. But even if there'd have been, even just like a toy rabbit with maybe an ear hanging off and maybe that one button for an eye, there could have been some form of rabbit to give a bit of impetus. That hasn't done that. There hasn't really been a bounce from this budget. Instead, it all has been about prioritise the markets, but that does feel like a that's a very clear choice that's been made. I don't think it's the right one, either economically or politically. I would agree politically it's not going to be very helpful for them at all. Economically, this this is when, when you get into one of those areas about what's good for the economy and what's good for the markets. Those are not necessarily the same things, even though we tend to talk about them in, in, interchangeably. Um, the markets wanted to effectively see all the stuff that Tr- Truss announced uh, undone, uh, and nice, serious, grown-up government back, which was committed to, you know, low levels of, uh, borrowing or decreasing borrowing over time and, you know, financial stability and security. As you say, given the current situation we're in with a, with a, with a recession basically on our doorstep, if we're not already in one technically, it's not necessarily the right choice to cut that expenditure right now for the, for the economy as a whole, but the markets, like that because they're focused on one small aspect of the economy not the wider thing what i find really interesting in this is that basically on a macroeconomic level it reminds a lot of the eurozone crisis so you can cause pain to individual citizens to try and control inflation uh, but if you do that then obviously you're going to be more politically unpopular with your individual citizens hence lots and lots of strikes and people who would never strike like nurses are now balancing to strike and are going to go on strike. So the, the Tories, as you said, have to balance pleasing the markets and being seen to get inflation under control whilst at the same time causing suffering to people. I mean, it's, it's not a, I don't want to be in their position. Uh, so they, um, obviously Tory ideology has their own spin on it, but that is a very difficult position to be in. Do you try to control inflation by basically telling people they can't have wage increases to, to match it? Or do you do the alternative and you know, have a potential uh, hyperinflation? I mean, you, the, the, the point you make is good in a sense that if you cut money out from the bottom, they're not going to spend it in the economy. So that's the, the counterpoint. But uh, you've got that tension there. And, you know, we saw those scenes in Greece years ago. I mean, those, those scenes will be here soon, won't they? Well, it's... It, but it's ironic, isn't it, that 12 years ago, George Osborne was standing up and saying we had to cut and we had to make cuts and couldn't borrow to invest when actually interest rates were really low and it yep. would have made sense to do that because we would turn into Greece 
even though actually we that was never going to happen because we're not in the euro and therefore have a central bank that prints our own currency and we'd be okay. Well, although that's that that is an interesting point in and of itself, in that there's been some analysis which has done which is basically saying that one of the kind of root causes of the difference between like the UK economy and like a lot of the European economies at the moment is that we went a bit OTT with quantitative easing. Um, so you have that interesting dynamic in there as well. Um, but then you've also just got the fact that the Tories have not been focused at any point really since they, they got into power in 2010 on, uh, on long-term economics in, in any form because they've just been focused on get to the next election, get to the next election. And if they can, we'll try and call that earlier than we, than, than we otherwise would have done. Uh, and you end up well, with where we are now with a focus that's been purely short term, purely on one area of the economy, which in some instances is the right thing to focus on in terms of like reducing overall, overall debt. But the way you should be doing that is by growing in the economy over time. Instead, we've, we've just hit a point where because of their mismanagement, the only way they can lower that is through more cuts when we've already had everything cut to the bone. Well, no, which is why actually you need to be boring to invest yep. and, and grow because otherwise you end up, I mean, I think the, the analogy that Paul Krugman always uses sort of, uh, it's like bloodletting essentially where you, you try and cure the patient by bleeding them and then the patient is worse. And so then you prescribe more bloodletting and that feels like that's what's been happening to our economy now for, for 12 years, really. Yeah. Um, but, but where did the Tories think these cuts are going to land? So if they cut local government again, but there's, there's nothing to cut? No. So I don't, I don't know where they think they can cut that they haven't already. So shall we talk about the politics of this then? So actually, I suppose, I think that they are hoping... So all, as I said, all the cuts have been delayed until after the election. So the big political trap, I think they're hoping, is that... Labour's in a situation where uh, if the media assume there is this, as you say, this this mythical black hole that's full of, 50, well, that, that isn't full of £50 billion, pounds, I suppose, in, the, in this sort of thing, that Labour's in a choice of, do you say we accept that there are, they we accept there's a black hole, we expect we have to make spending cuts, at which point most Labour Party goes, why are you doing this? That's not what we're in government. Or you say, no, that isn't true, we are going to spend and, and borrow in this. And then you end up with a sort of 92 election Tory tax, that Labour tax bombshell story, Labour will borrow and crash the economy even more than we've crashed it. Um, I just, I, I can see what they're trying to do. And maybe if you're a Tory strategist and you're trying to win an election in 2024, maybe that's the only thing you've got. I was going to say, I'm not even convinced they're, they're thinking that strategically about it. I think it really just, just does just boil down to the fact that they know that if they implemented any cuts before that election, it would result in them getting even more decimated seemingly than, than they are currently. I mean, I think, uh, at least I know myself and Corey, we're expecting obviously those poll, poll leads of Labour to come down at some point, uh, especially in the actual run up to an election. But, like if you put all that pain before that election, like that's just a recipe for disaster. You will be filled with all kinds of stories um, about how 
about I, I don't know about how schools aren't getting enough stuff, how how little old ladies aren't getting their hips replaced. You know, all of imagine, that. Imagine, imagine, Steve, if the news was full of stories of schools not being able to cope <laughs> and people having to wait months for operations and people having to wait hours and hours to wait at A and E and waiting for ambulance. Imagine if that was the case, Steve. Imagine how bad it would be for the government. But this is my my point: is if that's where we are now. Currently, it could get even worse with with more cuts this side of the election. So hey, I, you're saying the trains might not work either. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's a definite case of it's not even about necessarily them thinking strategically in the way that you've outlined. I think it's more just delay the inevitable as best we can, and if we somehow have to deal with it, we'll hope we'll, we will deal with it back back then. Because at least at that point, it's another four years until the general election. So, so I watch Question Time. And, I'm really sorry. And and it's it is inevitable now that every week the Tories. Like, I mean, they, they usually get often quite often get booed anyway. But like, it is literally a damage limitation exercise. They're not even trying to please people because you know, for example, nurses were talking about going on strike for the first time ever this week, mm. and uh, people and medical students were saying, "Well, we have this vicious uh, we have this vicious cycle of agency staff and." Everybody is saying very negative things, and if you're, uh, it was the transport minister uh, who was on from the Tories this week, and and basically every every answer was basically a trying to kind of damage control the situation rather than actually talking about anything, anything positive. And this is this is I don't think they can think strategically because every day is a, every day is a crisis. Possibly, maybe it's. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit. Maybe it's just lesser of, of evils, and that's what you had to do, but. I suppose my 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 uh, the the macabre truth behind my flippant point is the pain's already here. So living standards are going to fall by seven percent, which is the biggest drop since the fifties. We've also got the highest tax burden since World War Two, which is thirty-seven and a half percent. So you've got this absurd situation where we've got American-style public services on Scandinavian-style taxes, while people have less disposable income, which means they can't spend any money on the stuff. And that, and no way, and the government doesn't have any way of improving that. So I don't see how the conserv- the Conservatives are assuming that even if they've set this political trap for Labour, that alone surely means it's a, it's really, really hard to see how they recover from this. 100%, yeah, I... I- I'm not sure there is a a path out of this for them politically. Oh, we'll find a way, Steve. <laughs> um, I mean, events, dear boy, events. But like that, something could happen that that causes some kind of bounce, I, I suppose. But it would it would have to be something completely unexpected that you couldn't really necessarily even potentially begin to guess about. I don't know what they do. I think it is just going to be a battle to survive day in, day out, and it's just get through the day as best they can. I don't think, I don't think we're going to see anything from them that's actually meaningful in terms of reform, um, just due to the just due to the fact that they're either not going to have the bandwidth to do it, and even if they do have the bandwidth to do it, they're probably not going to be able to get it through the House of Commons because they're still too too divided on core core issues like how do we fund it. But- yeah, and, and even things that are traditionally their stronghold, like immigration, you know, Brexit has made more people 
come to this country than before and it's harder to control those borders more so than it was then. And so even those things that traditionally, you know, were Tory slogans and, and Tory ways of saying we've, we've got control of this country are absolute chaos as well. Yeah, yeah. the fact that Keir Starmer can devote five questions at PMQs to immigration or that crime is a, such an issue for Labour, that that is really, really significant. And again, But again, it's why you, we, we, we've sort of ended up in the worst of all possible worlds where... Um, I don't even remember the AV referendum shares when we first met. <laughs> we still cry once a year about it. We, we do. <laughs> oh, the banner. Um, <laughs> oh God, I've forgotten about the bloody banner. Just said yes. Sorry. <laughs> yes to what? <laughs> Sorry, listeners, we're going to pause for a moment while I have a PTSD flashback. The <laughs> horror. But the argument that was made for first past the post was that it gave you a strong and stable government with a majority to get stuff passed, as opposed to those horrible coalition governments that all those foreigners had, where they spent all their time arguing with each other and didn't get anything passed. Now, knock me down with a copy of Phil Willis's autobiography, Steve, if we haven't got a Tory government with a majority of 70 that still can't get anything damn passed, because the backbenchers have decided to revolt on every single issue so Charles mentioned Brexit where again part of the reason we're in uh, such a death spiral of no growth is because we managed to leave our biggest trading market and didn't really think that we needed more of a plan other than just waffle and vibes and uh, someone leaked to Tim Shipman that we might possibly possibly maybe have a sort of Switzerland where we're sort of in a single market and sort of not but and that was shot down in flames with the ERG going all over the place. We've got, um, as I say, we've got a labour shortage and you've got more Im- immigration, which is making everyone unhappy. But you've also got Tories trying to block house building happening. And you've also got um, another rebellion of Johnson and Liz, uh, Liz Truss, who you think would just retire gracefully into the sunset, but he's still trying to be involved. Liz Truss and Boris Johnson trying to end the ban on new onshore, end the ban on new onshore wind, which, fine, that seems like a relatively sensible idea. But if you've got this, this block of MPs who are going to try and stop stuff from happening, plus we're going to have a lot of Tory MPs standing down. So if your champagne is listening to this, um, this will have happened in the week that we're recording it. When this comes out to all those listeners who aren't champagners, um, hello, and we do, we do still love you, but you might have had more MPs stand down. We've had today, <laughs> Gary Street and Johanna Davidson stood down, Chloe Smith in Norwich, William Rag as well, standing down. Um, th- three of them are in their, th- well, I think De- Davidson's 29, I think um, Chloe Smith's the oldest at 40. <laughs> what incentive have they got to try and back the government now they're standing down? Yeah. yeah. So... How are they going to get anything through? Will we see many people crossing party lines? I don't know. But so my uh, limited sources in Westminster, which you know, sort of the, the the bottom feeders who feed on the bottom feeders, are apologies uh, to my sources. That's probably not the best way of putting it. Is it? <laughs> but I thought there was a rumor that Dehenna Davidson was one of those that might cross the floor. Yeah, um, I, I had heard heard that or come across that yeah. in some form. But I, I, I think the thing is, for so many of the Conservative MPs, 
it's a massive jump to go from what the Conservatives are and what they've stood for to where Labour is currently. So you had the one instance of, um, I can't remember the dude's name now. Guy Berry. Yeah, yeah. Um, former Conservative, now Labour MP in Berry, who, like, you can say, oh, well, he made that jump. But actually, if you look at his history, he used to be a member of the Labour Party. He left... I believe, kind of during the dark times, um, and then just managed- narrow it down. <laughs> <laughs> um, he 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 left. Um, I, I think I don't think it was just national stuff. I think there was some local stuff as well. Um, and then uh, got selected you know, by the Tories, and then came back to Labour. So he's actually like had been in Labour before. Labour before. He's working like- his way back to Labour with a burning love inside. <laughs> but for someone like the Henna Davidson, who's got no history with the party whatsoever, or any of the other Tory MPs for the most part, I, I struggle to see how how many could make that jump, especially as making that jump doesn't mean you're going to keep your seat. A lot of the kind of like more marginal seats have already selected their candidates, um, and as a result of as a result of that, you're going you're not guaranteed to make the jump and still keep your job. So why would you bother doing that? Like unless you unless it actually is a matter of principle for you, which I think if it was a matter of principle, you'd have probably already jumped in a lot of instances. Unless there's like one little thing somewhere. I feel like the. When Boris Johnson became, do you remember Boris Johnson? <laughs> yeah. When he became, he's on holiday again now. <laughs> he probably is. Uh, he's trying to block onshore wind. Um, no, he's not. He's trying to edit. Anyway, I'd just leave that. That that was actually quite funny. I didn't need to try and improve your humour. Um, when he became prime minister in 2019 and kicked out a lot of those moderate Tories, you probably, I think, it's that group who were probably most likely to cross the floor. Really. Um, as you say, you, you've got the one instance who, who already have, but I think as most of the Red Wall MPs are there because they're quite tribally Tory. So um, just going back to Dehenna Davison again, she said that she spent most of her adult life in politics. You know, she grew up a Tory. She probably didn't expect to win and did. She's actually quite tribally Tory. It's not like someone, say, like Rory Stewart or David Gook, where... You, you've got massive policy differences with the party that you might want to then move over to Labour. Yeah. If you're going to see any kind of defections, I would actually argue it's much more likely to go to someone like Reform, um, like somebody from ERG doing a Douglas Carswell um, and uh, joining the new version of uh, version of UKIP, um, or potentially just going, screw it, I'm just going to go independent. Um, like that, that I could imagine imagine happening. Um, the but. independent Tory group for change <laughs> what could possibly go wrong maybe Dominic Raab will join the Lib Dems because uh, for Rishi Sunak came in saying that he wanted to have a government that was I think, of integrity of professionalism I think he might have said working in the national interest or that might have been Nick Clegg I forget um, but we've had a few ministerial sort of scandals. We will talk about Gavin Williamson, the assassin face baby. Didn't even have time to talk about his cabinet return on the podcast before he resigned. Um, but also Dominic Raab. And again, we're recording this a few weeks. There's an investigation out at the moment. Um, so we can't talk about it very much, but it just feels like, again, when you've got, you've got people being appointed, a lot of baggage. 
and a lot of history and a lot of Tory MPs appear to be quite happy just to talk about that baggage to the media and, and the civil servants as well. I mean, the, the stuff that's reported about Rob and civil servants being given counselling when he's reappointed. I mean... Yeah, I mean, fun, fun, fundamentally within... In Sunak's cabinet, where he was like, oh no, we're going to focus on integrity, we're going to focus on you know the national interest, all of these things. He appointed Dominic Raab, who very quickly has ended up with the bullying claims and accusations and an investigation into him. He, appoint- he reappointed um, Suella Braverman, who had been sacked but a few days previous. Re- resign- yeah. yeah, yeah. Resigned in principle, sort of. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Um, for basically breaching the... Um, uh, 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 kind of like security protocols. Yeah, security co- for breaching security code protocols. And then you've got Gavin Williamson, who's Gavin Williamson, and therefore just an absolute terrible human being, and is known to be a terrible human being. And lo and behold, has been proven to be a terrible human being with text messages as literal receipts. And don't forget Matt, ha- Matt Hancock in the jungle. <laughs> no space for him. All the Saj in the cabinet. It's sad, disturbing times. But, I mean, fundamentally, this is uh, this is the issue that they've got, is that Rishi Sunak actually doesn't have any control over the Conservative Party and has therefore had to just bring in people into the Cabinet to try and maintain some kind of balance and keep people on side rather than actually run a government properly. Because otherwise, you wouldn't have any of those three in it. Well, yeah, I mean, let's... If we move aside the massive moral and humanitarian problem that is Suella Braverman as Home Secretary for a second, which I realise is the more important thing. But if we even talk about the raw politics of this, the reason she's there is because Rishi Sunak has to placate the right wing of his party and therefore Braverman has to be in. Um, now, it's not new for Prime Ministers to have to, to do that. Harold Wilson, friend of the pod, also had to do that and balance right and left wing of the Labour Party. The difference is that Harold Wilson was Harold Wilson not Rishi Sunak. And when you're balancing the right wing and left wing of the Labour Party in the 70s, you're talking about balancing Tony Benn, Michael Foote, Jim Callaghan, Tony Crosland, Dennis Healy. You're not talking about Swella Braverman, Dominic Raab, Gavin Williamson and Grant Shapps. Oh, good old Michael Green. Um... So they, they couldn't find new MPs who were ambitious to... Well, this is these gaps. This, this this is the issue they genuinely have now, um, and it could be getting a hell of a lot worse for them. Is that if you actually look at all the people that got brought in, it was all for the most part the same old faces. Like there was nobody necessarily that new that that made a. That, I mean, that to be fair, it, everyone's been a. Well, exactly. There was, this year. Well, well, no, no, there was something. I can't remember the exact figures, but there, somebody did actually do some analysis on this, and it's something like over half of the Conservative Party benches have been uh, worked in the worked in the government at some point during the past ten uh, well, well since 2010 yes. which Stop. is a ridiculous figure and just kind of goes to show how much turbulence and things there's been and just kind of goes to show that with each change in leader there has been some quite drastic shifting around at the bottom of the level at the bottom levels. But one, you've still got the same same people at the top. And two, clearly none of those other people were viewed as being good enough, either for party political reasons or maybe uh, competence reasons or whatever. No, it, so they've got no one to promote. It's Fraser in the, in the ski lodge, isn't it? The classic Fraser episode. Not not to name any names, obviously, Gary Sandbrook. But 
Imagine if you were one of these MPs who wasn't a minister. And it's like, oh, all this, you know, all these ministers. Peter Bowen was made a minister. Andrea Jenkins. But no one was focusing on me. <laughs> all these MPs just must be wondering what they've been doing with their lives. Uh-huh. I don't know how they feel. Because I remember back in 2010, a very long time ago, I realised that David Cameron made a real, real issue and made it front and centre to try and detoxify the party to bringing a new generation who hadn't had the same baggage as before and things like same-sex marriage. These were things that were definitely there to try and stop the Tories being seen as the nasty party. And I mean, I suppose it's impossible, isn't it, with now? Because there's just scandal after scandal after scandal. How, how do you try and detoxify that brand when there's a, every week there's a new newspaper headline? But again, it, it's the problem for Sunak is that actually Sunak probably could have, de- in terms of his image, detoxified the image, at least, of his premiership with the Labour and Lib Dem voters who he needed. The problem is, actually, politically, he's nowhere near them at all because he isn't a centrist. He is a right-wing Thatcherite. And that's fine, but that's not going to win you any seats in the red or the blue wall, necessarily. And yet, you, you, your other problem is, I, I just don't see how they they do when you've then got to make party decisions that mean people like Braverman have to be in. If it's not Braverman, it's someone else on that sort of right wing who got obsessed with right wing American campus politics and talk about wokery all the time. I was going to say, that, that, that's the interesting thing because when you're talking about the balance issues, like normally if you had a situation where someone like Braverman or Williamson, you know, gets, gets, gets the boot and you have to replace them, there's normally somebody else on that other wing that you can, you can bring up. But that doesn't seem to be the case here, which implies it's not just a case of, oh, it's just about balancing the wings of the party. It's about preventing some other people from going DEFCON 1 and just absolutely, you know, you know, new, uh, just destroying the party as, as part of the ongoing psychodrama in Civil War. So, like, if you kick out Soella Braveman, Suella Braveman's probably the sort of person that to go, to, goes, well, I'm going to make a statement and I'm going to defect to, uh, to reform or, or something like that. But even if she doesn't, like, look at Pretty Patel as an example, who again was the sort of the sop to the Tory right yeah. before. Um, yeah, it's, it's, Pretty Patel has kept her head down. It's not like she's, um, she's not going to defect, but I bet. The whips don't really like having to persuade her to vote for the government. Yeah, even if she, even if Braverman ends up having to resign again and is replaced with someone else, again, it's the sort of as Malcolm Tucker called it, the, the season ten of the big big breakfast thing, where you're just you're down to the bottom of the talent pool. I mean, the other, the other thing is in 2010 you had a massive uh, exodus of Parliament, partly just because it was the end of the Labour era and partly because of the expensive scandal a lot of. MP stood down. In 2019, you also had a massive change because a lot of new MPs came in, a lot of MPs stood down, especially female MPs, people like Nikki Morgan, because of the uh, the abuse that they were getting. And it looks like you're going to have another raft of MPs standing down as well. And particularly people like Chloe Smith, who've been there for 15 years, Gary Street has been there since 97. That institutional memory of the Commons is something that's really, really important. And it's yep. true in any organisation where you need people who can say, now we've tried that, didn't work. Or this is how you get this done. And the more that you have um, MPs who don't have that sort of experience, it does make it a less functional party and a less functional House of Commons. Mm-hmm. Speaking of not functioning, we've uh, been neglecting Champagner's apologies about that. 
But this episode is going to come out exclusively to you first and a slimmed down version will go out to everyone else who listens to this podcast at some point in December. If you're listening to this and you think, if only I'd have got these pearls of wisdom and insight maybe a couple of weeks before, that could have really have honed my game when talking about politics while having a beer on Birmingham's Christmas market. What would they have to do, Steve? Well, you could have headed over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne and for a few pounds every month, much like the Christmas appeals that will be going on on the TV right now, you can, uh, you know, you can either give some money to help save some children all over the world or you can help us keep our podcast going. Um, because everything uh, we earn on this goes to running the podcast and making sure that we get to, you know, continue talking to you week in, week out, moving forward. Can't believe for a podcast that claims to be made of political professionals, we frame the choice in those terms. <laughs> yeah. The choice in the selection is clear. You can either save the starving children of the world. Or buy us a pint. Oh. Just, just to maybe add some reason. You can do both. Yeah, you could do well, both, yeah. It's not an either or scenario. <laughs> yeah. Boris Johnson never is from have his cake and eat it. <laughs> Our website's nothing. No, it's not. <laughs> I will eventually remember that we don't pay Squarespace anymore. Sorry, Squarespace. If you advertise with us, we might have bothered. <laughs> Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash not enough champagne. Our Twitter handle is at no champagne pod. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. And Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Cookie Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. At Shaz Robin 30. Happy plotting.